Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is David Parnell. David is Associate Professor of History at Indiana University Northwest. His particular areas of interest are the Byzantine Empire, Late Antiquity, Ancient and Medieval Warfare, and the Crusades. And today we're going to talk about David's new book, Belisarius and Antonina. And for those who don't know, Belisarius and Antonina, they were born, I think, around the year 500. They served one of the greatest emperors in all Roman history, and they were two of the most interesting and consequential figures of their time. Anyway, welcome, David, to the podcast. Thank you, Russell. It's an honor to be here. Okay, so your your period is mainly the Byzantine Empire and late antiquity, and and there's a meme going around uh, right now to the effect that women don't realize that men think about the Roman Empire at least once a day. But I don't think the Roman Empire that people are thinking about is the empire of Justinian's time. So so why does Byzantium seem to get so little love compared to, say, the Republic or the early empire? That's a great question with probably many answers. One of them probably is that many of us, not all of us, do not get a lot of exposure to the medieval Roman or Byzantine empire in our primary or secondary schooling. So we might have a brief run through the ancient Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire, and we might be you know, inundated with images of a fall of a Roman Empire in the 5th century, and then suddenly we're on to the later medieval period, and we're going into Crusades and the Renaissance. And you know, there's an elision of this period of history, I think, in, a, in, a way, in the way a lot of curricula are designed. Um, and then more than that, we also are still dealing with the fallout of many centuries of historiography of the medieval Romans or the Byzantines, which portrayed them as effeminate, weak, wily, um, not worthy of study, not worthy of their Roman forebears. So I think there's an undercurrent of that still in our society that historians of the Byzantine Empire are trying to overcome and trying to show people that this is a subject worthy of study. So is the idea that maybe English historians trying to sort of associate the imperial greatness of Britain, the the imperial greatness they want to associate with is the sort of the high empire. Is that about it? Yes. And and in the United States here, we, we want to think about the Roman Republic uh, because of the founders here and their interest in Roman Republican institutions. So I think uh, interest in the early Roman imperial period and the, and the Roman Republican period sort of far outweighs interest in the medieval Roman or Byzantine period. Okay. Well, we'll see if we can, we can repair the balance somewhat uh, today. So um, – it's a very confusing period, though, because for about the last 500 years, the whole Mediterranean, it's one big Roman lake, and it's very easy to understand. But then, quite quickly, we've got Goths, we've got Ostrogoths, we've got Franks, we've got maybe Byzantines, don't know quite what we should call them. So, I think the listeners would appreciate it if you would orientate us in in the period of Justinian. Can you tell us a bit about, I guess, take us through the the last years of the empire in the West 
and and take us up to our period today. Sure, gladly. So if we if we stretch our minds back to the fourth century, when the empire is whole, uh, many of your listeners may be aware that the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity was Constantine, and that he was a ruler over a unitary empire, the sole ruler. Uh, and then starting with Constantine and, and following after him, we get various periods where the empire is not divided into two different states, but is ruled by more than one emperor. So Constantine's sons uh, share power for a while. Uh, and then we have, uh, through many twists and turns, the emperor Theodosius, again, being sole ruler over the empire. And then when he dies, he splits power between his two sons. Arcadius and Honorius in 395. And that's really the last time the empire is ruled by a single emperor for some time. So uh, this is where people often talk about a Western and an Eastern empire. It's really still one whole Roman empire, just with two heads of state, two courts. Um, so that's, that's the Roman side of it. But as you pointed out, we also, in the fourth century, have the beginning of the arrival of these waves of what the Romans called barbarian peoples coming in, what you may call a migration, an armed migration, what you may call an invasion. We have the Goths in the fourth century who defeat the Emperor Valens at Adrianople in 378. We have the Vandals and the Burgundians and the Swebians crossing the Rhine in 406. Uh, we have the Vandals moving through what we today call Gaul and Spain, sort of pillaging as they go and then deciding to cross from Spain to North Africa at the Strait of Gibraltar in 429. Uh, they capture Carthage in 439. And then we have a Vandal state in Africa. So through this process, the Roman emperors ruling from Italy have sort of lost the control over Gaul, Spain, and now Africa. And they still control Italy, but they end up in a situation where they don't have the resources needed to pay their forces, to pay their armies while they're ruling in Italy. And this ends up in 476 in a general of barbarian descent named Odovacar overthrowing the last Roman emperor in Italy, Romulus Augustulus. And Odovacar then rules Italy as, as rex or king uh, until in... Uh, 489, the Ostrogoths under Theodoric move into Italy, and in 493, Theodoric kills Odovacar, rather treacherously, I might add, <laughs> and then sets up an Ostrogothic kingdom in Italy. Uh, so this sort of ends Roman imperial control, or at least Roman direct imperial control in the West through this series of uh, invasions and movements. And throughout all this time, as I would like your listeners to keep aware, as I'm very interested in, there is still an emperor ruling in Constantinople. Uh, so the emperor's ruling in Constantinople over the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which is this sort of arc from uh, the Balkans through Anatolia and the Levant down to Egypt, uh, rule in an unbroken uh, chain of succession uh, for centuries uh, after this period. And, and that's what we call the, the medieval Roman, the Eastern Roman, or the Byzantine Empire, depending on the terminology you choose. And this is just a little bit of a diversion, and maybe I'll cut it out, uh, depending on how it goes with timing. But is the Eastern Roman Emperor 
terribly unhappy about the collapse of uh, imperial authority in the West? Is there a sense in which the eastern half and the western half are rivals and now now the threat from the West is gone or is that uh, is that not quite right? Yes, uh, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. And, and in part, this is a question of source material. You know, it's not like we have uh, diaries of each Roman emperor where they're yes. saying, you know, dear diary, I'm, yes. I'm very glad to be rid of that <laughs> opponent of mine in the West, or I really regret losing my, you know, fellow colleague in the West. Uh, we don't even have, you know, minutes of the imperial consistory or, you know, high committee meetings that we could refer to. Uh, so we're, we're really dealing with a situation where we have to infer a lot from, from sources. And so one argument that historians have made is, well, there's not a lot of written material in the Roman East from 476 up until about 527 or so that shows that the Roman emperors in Constantinople regretted the fall of Roman imperial authority in the West. Um, and then all of a sudden with Justinian's reign, we get some of these impressions. Oh, well, you know, we Romans lost these Western territory to these barbarians. And so there's one historical thought which says, well, previous emperors didn't care. And then Justinian sort of ginned up the fact that he cared about it so that he could have Cossus belly for his mm. wars in the West. Um, but I think it's also entirely possible that we we simply don't have the information that we might like to have about what exactly Roman emperors in Constantinople thought about it in that period. And they were indeed very busy with other things and didn't really have the opportunity to do much about what was happening in the West and, until Justinian. So, I think personally, it's sort of an open question, but I I can see both sides of the argument. Okay, so let's uh, let's uh, let's bring in Justinian then and his wife Theodora. So, what kind of people are each of them? Because this is the great Roman emperor, but I guess he doesn't start great. So, what's his what's his background and 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 what's his what's his wife's background and what are their what's their relationship? Well, <laughs> husband and wife, obviously, but you know what I mean. Yes, Justinian and Theodora are very interesting, at least to us moderns, because they come from such unexalted backgrounds. Justinian is the nephew of a poor farmer from the Balkans, whose name was Justin. And we have reports that Justin, when he was a young man, left home to head to Constantinople in search of employment and a future with nothing but you know, the clothes on his back and a little bit of bread uh, wrapped up in a knapsack uh, to take with him. Um, so we get this impression that Justinian's family is, is very poor indeed uh, and that they have no substantial wealth. There is nothing to recommend them as far as their lineage. They don't have distinguished ancestors. Um, and so Justinian arrives in Constantinople, a, a parvenu, a new man who is no connection to the ruling elite. And his wife, Theodora, uh, who seems to have always lived in Constantinople, was born there, uh, was born the daughter of a bear keeper who worked for <laughs> one of the circus factions. Uh, her mother was potentially an actress. Uh, and uh, 
to orientate your listeners to this, these were these were not high-ranking professions or fields in the Roman Empire, uh, not the way that a famous actress is today. Actors and actresses and circus workers were considered sort of the low of the low, the uh, practically untouchable people of society. If you were an elite, you did not want to be seen associating with them. It was one thing to, to look at them and see them performing and have a laugh about it, but these were not people that you would share a beverage with or go out to dinner with. You wouldn't seek their autograph. They were, they were beneath you. So uh, Theodore and Justinian come from both very low, unexalted backgrounds, but very different in that Justinian's was poor, but sort of a respectable, hardworking agricultural family, while Theodora was uh, urban and cosmopolitan probably, but also uh, not reputable. Uh, something was off about her, according to the elite. So how do they come to marry? Is he, does he marry her once he becomes emperor? Does he, is he married to her before? Excellent question. So he does marry her before he becomes emperor, but he is not allowed to marry her by imperial law at the time, which forbades senators uh, and the family of senators from marrying actresses and the family of actresses. So there's this legal attempt to keep the elite classes away from this sort of disrespectable part uh, of society. And Justinian leans on his uncle Justin, who becomes emperor in 518, to pass a new law that would enable senators to marry what the law refers to as reformed actresses, <laughs> those, who have, those who have left the field and huh. properly repented of their actions. And, uh, and so uh, this law passes, and, and shortly after that, Justinian and Theodora are wed, probably four to five years before Justinian actually becomes emperor. So he has married her for several years before he becomes emperor himself. So it sounds like it's a marriage of love then. I mean, it's highly disadvantageous to him. I mean, you say he's a parvenu, he comes from nothing. I suppose by then, uh, his father has clawed his way up. And now, you know, Justinian's, you know, carried up with him. And he's prepared to to do this. I mean, this is uh, this is a big step for him, isn't it? Very big, yes. So Justinian is adopted by his uncle, uh, which makes him legally his uncle's son, uh, which will allow him to claim all sorts of status as the son of the emperor and will eventually enable him to become emperor himself. So even though Justinian starts with this, this poor sort of rough and tumble background, he has ascended to already nearly the top of Roman society by the time he chooses to marry Theodora. And there can be no conceivable advantage, sort of politically speaking, to this marriage. It's a marriage that is now legal thanks to this new law and therefore at least tolerated. But it is the kind of marriage that will win him no respect from the sort of stuffy elite of Constantinople who see this as a shock to their system. Uh, and an inappropriate behavior for a man who would be emperor. Uh, so yeah, clearly this is a marriage of love because you cannot conceive of a, a reason beyond love why Justinian would have chosen Theodora. Uh, he, he must love her very much. Okay, so we want to, we've got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to jump ahead a bit. Uh, Justinian is emperor, and 
for whatever reason, he's not a popular emperor. And there's riots in the Hippodrome. Is that where they have the chariot racing, the Hippodrome? Yeah. So, so they have riots in the Hippodrome known as the Nika or the Nika riots. I think they go on for some days. I'm a little bit unclear about the exact uh, time frame. So do you want to just, because this to me, the Nika riots and how they are suppressed seems to me to be almost the defining moment of Justinian's reign. So just want to explain uh, what happened. Yes, uh, as you pointed out, these riots begin in the Hippodrome. So uh, a brief orientation to public spectacle and entertainment in this world. Uh, by this point, the Christianization of the Roman Empire and changing tastes mean that there are no longer gladiatorial combats in the Roman world. Uh, so gladiatorial combats and amphitheater entertainment, such as wild beast hunts, has now largely been replaced uh, by actresses like Theodora and potentially her mother, and on the other hand, chariot races in the hippodromes. Uh, so very popular. Almost everybody across the empire has a favorite chariot racing team. At least that's what we're led to believe. Chariot races are very well attended. They are sponsored by the government, so they are free to attend. So it's a great way to blow off steam. You go down to the chariot races uh, and, and you enjoy yourself. Uh, but there are some fans who are more exuberant than others, <laughs> shall we put it. Yeah. Uh, the famous comparison made at this point more than 50 years ago by Alan Cameron is that uh, these chariot racing fans are akin to modern soccer hooligans or football hooligans, as as you would probably say. Huh. And uh, they tend to get very rowdy at these chariot races to the point of uh, public destruction of property, arson, fighting with one another, and of course, rioting when that fighting expands beyond a small subsection of the, the stands. And uh, this is how the Nika riots begin. So it initially has very little to do with Justinian as an emperor or Justinian as a person. Uh, there are there are a riot, and the city prefect brings in troops and arrests some of the rioters. Uh, and to make an example of them, they intend to hang them. So they hang these partisans, these faction leaders of the chariot racing teams, and the noose happens to break on two individuals when they're being hung. So they, they survive the hanging. And it just so happens that these two individuals come from opposite teams, one from the blue team and one from the green team. Uh, so there is an outcry then when Justinian next attends the races in the Hippodrome. And the fans gathered request uh, a pardon an amnesty for these two men. They suggest that God wanted them pardoned, and that's why their noose is broke, so clearly the emperor should let them go. And this is where the trouble really begins, because Justinian ignores the requests. What an idiot. Uh, it's very common in the Hippodrome for the gathered people to make petitions of their emperor to ask things. Uh, and the emperor is usually responsive. These are his people. There's a give and take there. So he'll either give the, the approval or the disapproval. But either way, he gives some kind of answer. In this case, Justinian gives no answer. 
And as you might imagine, this this actually further enrages the crowd uh, and results in the start of these things that we call the Nika riots. Uh, so the crowds unite together and chant Nika, 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 uh, which is the Greek for win, win, win. And it's typically a chant uh, directed at one of the two teams. So if you're a fan of the green team, you say win, greens. If you're a fan of the blue team, win, blues. Here, they just say win over and over again with no team name. So this is something new, something different. Um, and uh, then they start rioting. You know, you can imagine, you know, much as today, uh, there might be a riot at a sport event. They're picking up things. They're throwing things onto the racetrack. Uh, they're trying to, you know, rip up the stadium seating they're sitting on. They start punching each other. And, then, you know, <laughs> it, it spills out and, and it begins to go out of hand. Uh, and, to make a long story short, the riot lasts for about a week. So this is not a simple afternoon affair. Uh, the rioters, night after night, come back out. They continue what they're doing. There is repeated acts of arson. Uh, there is uh, attempts to break free the two individuals who had survived the hanging, which succeed. They are freed. Uh, but the riot doesn't end there. It sort of gathers its own momentum and keeps going. Uh, and the Emperor Justinian, having made the original mistake to not respond to the request, tries all sorts of things to, to satisfy the rioters. At one point, he's eager to agree with their requests. At another point, he tries to use force to tamp down the riot. Um, and all of his vacillation seems to just make it worse because he doesn't know what to do. And he's not firm on one side or the other of his response. And so the riot stretches on and there is a great swath of the city destroyed in the course of the riot. So how do they finally manage to to bring it to an end? So we could talk all podcast about, <laughs> yes, about yes, the Nika Rise. We could just do the Nika Rise, but there's so much in it. But if we skip to the end, uh, after after many twists and turns, uh, we get to a point where the rioters have returned to where the riot began, to the Hippodrome. Uh, and it's this vast structure, uh, elliptical-shaped tract with seating all around it, uh, it takes up a huge portion of uh, what today is Sultanahmet Square in Istanbul, what then was downtown Constantinople, uh, could fit about 100,000 spectators. So this is a massive structure. But it also, as all arenas or stadiums are, has controlled entry through various gates. Uh, so once these people are, are all in the Hippodrome assembled, uh, Justinian has an opportunity to end the riot by force. Uh, and that is to send in troops under the command of his trusted generals, Belisarius and Mundus, uh, and his trusted Chamberlain Narses, and to have them quite literally quash the riot by simply killing everybody who resists. And at that moment, Justinian, uh, according to Procopius of Caesarea, wavers about whether he wants to be present for the crushing of the riot. So the emperor is weighing the option to flee Constantinople, presumably to cross over uh, the Bosporus uh, and to hang out at Chalcedon or something on the, on the Asian side uh, until the riot is quashed. And doing so would give him security in the event that the quashing of the riot didn't go well. Uh, and if the quashing of the riot did go well, it would give him plausible deniability because he wasn't there. <laughs> uh, but 
Uh, Justinian is swayed and disdained by his wife, Theodora, who stands up in the imperial consistory, the, the meeting of all of these high advisors and generals, and says, if you want to flee, we have ships and you can take the ships. But as for me, I will stay and fight for my throne because I think that purple makes the best burial shroud. Uh, so this this speech by Theodora, according to Procopius at least, sort of steals the resolve of Justinian and the men in the room, and they decide to proceed with this plan to send in the troops uh, and cut down the rioters and to end the riot by force. And is it a fairly quick and peaceful ending, or it is not quick and peaceful? <laughs> uh, how how bloody and terrible it is is a matter of some debate. Uh, but we have essentially armies stationed at each sort of major entrance to the Hippodrome. Uh, and on the entrance of Belisarius, who seems to be the, the man in charge, the, the ringleader, uh, all the others are supposed to take their cue and also enter. And Belisarius and the soldiers with him are charged with making their way to the imperial box where the emperor usually sits and pulling down a pretender to the throne who has placed himself there at the behest of the rioters. The rest of the soldiers are given the task simply of what we would today call crowd control, uh, but in a much more brutal sense. These are not men with batons and riot shields. These are men with shields and swords and spears, and they come in and they kill, and they kill, and they kill. Uh, and the report given by Procopius is that 30,000 people are cut down uh, in the Hippodrome. If this is true, this is, of course, an utterly horrifying body count and would have meant a scene of considerable carnage, but also it would have taken hours to kill so many people. This is not a process that would have been over quickly or, or painlessly. It's not like lopping off you know, one or two troublemakers and the rest disperse. There's nowhere for these people to disperse. They're all trapped in the enclosed space as the Hippodrome as the soldiers go from one side to the other, uh, cutting down at least anybody who resists. Probably not everybody present. There are some survivors, but uh, even if it's not 30,000 people, clearly a good number of people are killed in this process. When you read about it, the comparison that comes to my mind, at least, is Tiananmen Square. I mean, there's that sense of ruthlessness against your own people. I mean, maybe he felt he had no choice. His his regime is on a knife edge at this stage, right? Yeah, uh, not being an expert in modern Chinese history and Tiananmen Square, I think one of the differences we might draw is that uh, here Justinian has been given a choice, essentially, by the way the riot has progressed. It's either his throne and potentially his life, or it's putting down the riot and getting rid of this usurper that is sitting in the imperial box getting acclaimed by the rioters. Because at this point, if the rioters should be allowed to win, hmm. should be allowed to place this new man on the throne, there's no way they let Justinian off with you know a peaceful retirement somewhere. It's going to be his life, his wife's life, all of his family members' lives. Um, and so it's, it's that or it's putting down the riot and he's tried various methods and none of them have worked. So he seems to think that violence is, is the only option. So it's my understanding that it, at Tiananmen Square, you know, as much as I'm not an expert, that the the protest there was not about to uh, 
topple the Chinese communist government oh. and kill all the communist leaders. You no. know? <laughs> so no. that's a. I'm not saying the Justinian's, stakes are different. The stakes are different, right? Yeah, and I'm not saying Justinian's response is proportional or that we should forgive him for this slaughter. I, I would not make that claim, but I think that yeah, the stakes are different, as you put it. Yeah. Okay, so so Belisarius has entered the picture. So who is this man, Belisarius? Where has he come from? What's he been doing up to the uh, up to the time of the riots? So Belisarius will become the most famous general of the entire century. But at the time of the riots, he is a young general with a checkered record, to to put it to put it generously. So he had begun his career as a private bodyguard of the Emperor Justinian. Uh, I should say of the general of Justinian. This is before Justinian became emperor. So at some point in his rise to the top, Justinian found a number of young men whom he admired. He brought them into his entourage, as we would say today. He gave them positions of authority. And one of them was the young Belisarius. As soon as Justinian becomes emperor, he is eager to put into positions of authority these young men from his entourage that he sort of came up with, that he trusted. And one of them is Belisarius, who receives a command uh, in what we today call uh, northern Iraq, southern Turkey, so sort of right there in what the Romans called Mesopotamia. And Belisarius uses this command to fight several battles against the Romans' old enemies, the Persians. Uh, and one of them is a loss, but it's not quite clear it's Belisarius's fault because this is very early in his career and there's other people with similar ranks present at the battle. Uh, then Justinian promotes Belisarius to the rank of general of the East, the highest ranking military officer on the Persian front. So then it's very clear Belisarius is in charge because he's got the highest title. Uh, and with that title, he fights two battles, uh, one at Dara in 530 and one at Callinicum in 531. The first one is a resounding Roman victory. Belisarius defeats a Persian army uh, larger than the Roman army he commands. He wins plaudits and applause. Uh, this is one of the greatest Roman victories over the Persians in decades. Uh, and then the very next year, <laughs> Belisarius fights the Battle of Callinicum, and he allows himself to be outmaneuvered and defeated uh, by the Persians. And as a result, uh, there is an inquiry into his conduct, and the Emperor Justinian decides that Belisarius needs, at the least, a break. <laughs> maybe, maybe more than that. He is recalled to Constantinople. He is dismissed from his position. And so at the time of the Nika riots in January 532, Belisarius is a general without an army, a general without a specific position. So he still holds that rank of general, but he doesn't have a specific army he commands. And he's living there in Constantinople, waiting to see if the emperor will give him another chance. And I'm sure he did not imagine that his new chance would come through fighting hooligans in the streets of Constantinople, but that is that is where his chance came from. Uh, so Belisarius seizes this chance to stand loyally by Justinian during the Nika riots, uh, and this throw of the dice works out well for him because Justinian survives the riots thanks to Belisarius, and then Justinian will trust Belisarius with greater and greater grants of authority and power, which will lead him on to the career that he eventually has. 
So you'll have to tell me, but my assumption is that after the Nika riots, presumably the regime is is pretty shaky in that this this must have I mean I'm assuming it must be massively unpopular. So my assumption is that Justinian he comes up with the with the idea that that what we need is to make the Roman Empire great again. And the way to do that is to recover the old Roman provinces in Africa. So is it is it all a PR exercise to support the regime or, or is there some wider strategic necessity at work here? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think it's still a matter of debate among historians. So we have we have two sort of extreme explanations for the decision Justinian makes to take on the Vandal Kingdom in Africa and then eventually the Ostrogothic Kingdom in Italy. So on the one hand, we have the suggestion that Justinian had long dreamed and long planned of a restoration of the Roman Empire, a restoration through the law by uh, revamping the legal code, a restoration of the physical fabric of the empire by engaging in building projects, and a restoration of, of political and military authority by restoring Roman rule to these lost Roman territories in the West. So that's, that's one explanation. On the other hand, we have this other explanation, which you alluded to. Uh, and in that one, there is almost no sort of long-term thinking or strategic goal. Instead, the emperor is casting about for some kind of distraction from his own unpopularity, some sort of uh, quick victory he can earn to sort of boost his his reputation. Uh, and he is then an opportunist at best or a desperate gambler at worst <laughs> uh, in his Western ventures. Um, so th- these two are obviously very diametrically opposed interpretations of how Justinian came to plan and execute these campaigns. And I tend to think that the truth lies somewhere in the middle, uh, that Justinian's <laughs> decision uh, to engage in these Western adventures is is partly based on some innate conviction that he does want to have a, a restoration of the Roman Empire, also partly based on some desire to find a way to to get a win, to boost his reputation and his, his long-term um, history. Uh, and uh, and finally, uh, it's partially based on circumstances on the ground. Uh, we don't know how Justinian would have acted if he were not presented with Cossus Belli by uh, first the Vandals and then the Ostrogoths. And the way that history is described to us by Procopius of Caesarea, who wrote of Justinian's wars, there are very clear reasons uh, that Justinian is provided with to engage in these wars. Uh, so I think some combination of all three of these things, uh, who knows which one weighs more heavily on the emperor's <laughs> mind any given time, but uh, there's reason to suspect that they're all a piece of the equation. So what have the vandals done? I mean, apart from, I mean, their name would suggest they're up to no sort of all sorts of mischief all the time, but, but what have the vandals done to enrage Justinian that uh, causes them to send this army across? So... I think it's important to to set Justinian's decision in context a little bit. The Eastern Romans, the Roman emperors in Constantinople had been displeased with the Vandal occupation of North Africa for some time. So there were uh, more than one attempt to send armies from the eastern half of the empire to retake the territories uh, that the Vandals were, were controlling. So Justinian is not 
new in this. So I think there's always some some historical animosity we can refer to there. But the more immediate concern that Justinian has uh, is that a recent Vandal king named Hilderic had uh, shown considerable kindness to Christians that believed the Nicene Creed, to, to Nicene Christians. And this was unusual in Vandal history because the Vandals converted to an Aryan form of Christianity. And so for many decades, they maintained a vigorous per- persecution of Nicene-believing Christians in North Africa. And the Eastern Romans, uh, being by and large Nicene-believing Christians, found this hard to stomach. Uh, And I think the emperors felt a little bit of responsibility for their co-religionists in North Africa. So Hilderic comes to the throne, uh, and this delights uh, Justin and then Justinian, because Hilderic is... um, more moderate, more willing to allow Nicene Christians to follow their beliefs. Uh, And then shortly before uh, the decision to attack the Vandals, uh, Hilderic is overthrown and imprisoned by his nephew, Jelimer, who then becomes the new Vandal king. And Jelimer is more along the lines of the older Vandal kings in his religious tastes uh, but more importantly, you know, even if he happened to be nice to Nicene Christians, he had overthrown, you know, his uncle, who who was the original Vandal, nice to Nicene Christians king. So this <laughs> this upsets Justinian. So he engages in at first diplomacy, as we would call it. He writes a letter to Jelimer saying, "Hey, what you've done is not nice. You should not have overthrown your <laughs> uncle. You should let him out of prison. He is the rightful king of the Vandals." And Jelimer basically writes back to Justinian and tells the emperor to mind his own business. So, you know, right before this choice, Justinian does have this this provocation here, this first, the religious provocation, uh, and second, the the sort of personal insult of being told as, you know, Roman emperor and mightiest ruler in the entire Mediterranean world to mind his own business. So, uh, one might say that this was not politic of Jelimer to have responded in such a way, but surely he, he could not have foreseen what did actually happen. Well, presumably Jelimer thinks that at, at very worst, what's going to happen this time is what's going to happen last time. And you sort of adverted to previous attempts. And that sort of implies to me that they didn't go particularly well. <laughs> yes. So uh, one attempt made it as far as Sicily uh, before the Roman fleet was actually called back because Attila the Hun had appeared on the scene. And a, a second attempt made it all the way to North Africa off the coast of Carthage. Uh, but then the Roman uh, general and fleet commander uh, lost attention at the wrong moment, <laughs> uh, allowed his fleet to be surrounded by Vandal fire ships. Uh, which then sailed in and set his fleet alight and sunk the vast majority of the ships and killed the vast majority of the soldiers aboard so that the Roman expeditionary force never actually set foot uh, on the ground of North Africa. So the last two attempts by the Eastern Romans to take back North Africa had been uh, canceled and then a spectacular failure. So you know, if Jellimer's looking at this history, he might have reason to feel somewhat <laughs> confident that, you know, He's not in any real danger from this Justinian way off in Constantinople. But Justinian, he sends he sends a pretty formidable force under Belisarius, doesn't he? I mean, this is a decent-sized attack force. It's not negligible. 
Yes, this is one of the arguments of my book, and I'm I'm responding to a long uh, a long chain of modern historians who have looked at the the fleet of Belisarius and declared it to be almost too small for the job, and you know the emperor is just sending a almost a token force to North Africa. It's a, it's a gamble to see if it'll work. Uh, and and my argument is that this is a measured investment that the emperor is making in this campaign. He's not sending an overly large force. He's not sending a force that comprises half of all his armies and ships. But he's not sending a, a tiny force either. The the number of ships is about five hundred, which is <laughs> not small. Uh, the number of soldiers uh, is about eighteen thousand plus or minus some private bodyguards of Belisarius and his fellow high-ranking officers. Um, And this is in line with the other campaign forces we know about from the time period, which range between 15,000 and 20,000 or maybe 25,000. So um, it's not a huge army, but it's not small either. It's it's a reasonably sized campaign army for this period. uh, And by sending it, the emperor is saying this is something I, I want to happen. I want to see uh, Belisarius and his army succeed. I am not, I'm not under-investing in him. And coming with Belisarius is his wife, Antonina, who comes into the picture for the first time. So, so shall we say a bit about Antonina's background to the extent that we know it? And why does Belisarius bring his wife on campaign? Is that... Is that unheard of? I, I'm not quite sure. Yes, this is one of the one of the sort of beautiful images uh, of late antiquity. Is we have this this formidable fleet sailing out of Constantinople, all of these ships, all of these soldiers, and on the flagship stands <laughs> the general in command, Belisarius, and next to him his wife. Uh, and that's extremely interesting because this is not, as far as we can tell overly common. We have other examples from far more ancient Roman history. So in the first century, uh, we know that some Roman generals uh, were accompanied by their spouses on campaign. But we have very little direct evidence in the intervening period that this was at all common. And yet it's reported to us by the historian Procopius as not being anything out of the ordinary. Mm. Uh, He just says, well, and there sailed Belisarius and also his wife Antonina. There they are. So uh, it is unusual, but presented as normal. And I think that's very interesting. Uh, Antonina herself is this fascinating figure. Uh, We can think of her almost as a Theodora light if we wanted to do so. Uh, She comes from the same world as Theodora. Her father was a charioteer. Her mother was an actress. Uh, We know that she is associated with either Thessaloniki or Constantinople uh, because those are the places her father raced his chariots. So she might have been born in either city. But either way, she is much like Theodora. She is the daughter of entertainers. She lives in a large metropolis, so she is cosmopolitan, she is urbanite, uh, she has an understanding of the world of entertainment and what that means, uh, but she also is therefore of, of lesser status than uh, elite women in society. And Belisarius, as a general, is, is much like Justinian. 
He comes from a rural background in the Balkans. Uh, we don't know how wealthy he was. He might have been richer in his family than Justinian was. But either way, he's a, a rural individual from the Balkans who comes to Constantinople to make his career in the Roman army. Uh, and so uh, Belisarius and Antonina in their origins are, are like a microcosm, a, a copy almost of Justinian and Theodora. Um, one distinct difference we know is that Antonina was married before she mm. met and married Belisarius. So she had at least uh, one marriage uh, before she met Belisarius, uh, and she had at least two children through that marriage before she met Belisarius. So when Belisarius and Antonina wed sometime before this Vandal campaign, uh, he, the young, strapping, up-and-coming general, uh, was marrying a widowed woman who was the mother of two children and was probably at least a few years older than him. So uh, this is uh, not the pairing you might expect for a young and upcoming sort of swashbuckling general. Yes, it's extremely odd because, well, you tell me, what is what is marriage like at this period in Roman history? Because I always imagine marriage amongst the elite as being elite families marry into other elite families to try and get some sort of marriage advantage. Is marriage the same in our period as it was maybe in, I don't know, the high empire or, it's, or has something changed? Uh, maybe has Christianity changed the nature of marriage? I'm sort of just struggling to understand if it's comparable because you had monogamy, you know, monogamy was the way of it in even in the uh, pre-Christian time. So is marriage different now or is it broadly the same? The institution of marriage has not changed that much in centuries. So uh, somewhere in the later Roman Republic, we get a change in which uh, marriage very commonly uh, allows the woman a little bit more of her own independence, to own her own property, to, to control uh, her own dowry that she gets or her own inheritance from her parents. Uh, so for many centuries now, women have had sort of this, this additional freedom that they did not have in the early Republican period. But uh, as, as you point out, it's not uncommon to see marriage uh, used as a tool, at least among elite families, for um, moving up the political order. And so uh, sons and daughters might be matched in this way to sort of uh, advance a family's interests. But there does seem to be a trend in the late antique period. So uh, already uh, maybe a century old by the time Belisarius and Antonina wed of men from more powerful circumstances, uh, intentionally, uh, as, as one historian called it, marrying down. Um, not to suggest that they necessarily thought less of their wives, but marrying down and that they married a woman from a lower social class or a lower social position than their own family. And this was done, we think, to provide the husband with a little bit more leverage in that marriage. But so if you know a rich elite man marries the daughter of another rich elite man, then he has to pay <laughs> her and his his new father-in-law a certain deference. Uh, whereas if he happens to marry somebody of a lower social 
economic class, then, you know, he can maybe throw his own weight around a little bit more and not have to be quite so deferential to his new in-laws or, or to his, his wife herself. Um, so uh, we see this with both Justinian marrying Theodora and Belisarius marrying Antonina. This is, this is two examples of uh, men with a fair degree of power and with prospects in society marrying women whose families could not hope to challenge them. Um, so is that because they did that intentionally so that they could have more authority in their relationships? Or is that because they genuinely loved these women and it just so happened that the trends of society made it a little more acceptable now to, to follow that love match? Um, is the kind of question that we could only answer for certain with, with more detailed information from the parties. Yeah. Well, I mean... I've just realized, by the way, that I've been mispronouncing. I've been calling her Antonina, and you've been calling Antonina. I this is not a mispronunciation on your part. I, I would like to throw in there. Is I, I've experienced this a number of times as well. I think the way you are pronouncing her name, Antonina, is is probably much more common, uh, certainly uh, in UK English. Um, I pronounce it Antonina as sort of a... a a little bit of an affectation, I suppose. Um, <laughs> this is how the Greeks the, would pronounce it, right? Yeah the uh, the the Greek is uh, Antonina. The middle part of her name is uh, New Iota New, uh, or as we would say N I N, if we if we Englishize the words. Uh, and as far as I know, in ancient Greek, that is that that sounds like Nin. There is no sort of nine sound to it. Uh, so it's a little bit of a classical affectation to call her Antonina. I'm, I'm trying to reproduce it as I think, you know, a, a speaker of classicizing Greek might have pronounced it. I'll try to follow you, but I don't promise to do so consistently. <laughs> you, you say we don't know if it's a marriage of love or, or, or exactly, but but it is striking because Antonina is, I think you you guesstimate that she's five years his senior and she comes with two is it two sons uh you know he must have had choices so that does sound like uh and everything that comes later suggests that they were extremely close i mean the the bare fact that he's taking her with him on campaign because i mean you mentioned people were taken on campaign sometimes in the early empire but but my recollection is that they are the campaigns were setting out from from Roman territory, and you didn't take your wife into enemy territory, but that's that's what's happening here, right? Yeah, Antonina is being brought into the into the the teeth of the enemy, uh, and not just any enemy. As we've talked about before, this is an enemy in which the Romans have had no success fighting uh, over the last several decades, uh, and, and this is a campaign that many realized was was quite risky. In fact, Justinian's top civilian ministers argued against him engaging in this campaign. They said this is this is a fool's errand and if you fail it's going to bankrupt us and and there's all these problems with it uh, and, and Justinian's pushing on anyway. So that Antonina is not just going on any old campaign. She's not going to uh, as she will later, she will later go to the east. And that's a different situation with very stable Roman fortresses sort of looking across at Persian fortresses. So she can be stationed safely in, you know, a, a Roman fortress and, you know, watch the army. Here she's just going, she's on a ship with everybody else. She's as exposed as everybody else. And it's, 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 it's a leap of faith on her part to go uh, and remarkable that she's allowed to go. Okay, so as you say, the advisors 
are dead against it, and and the Vandals are almost inevitably successful when they meet the Romans. So presumably this is a long-fought, bloody campaign to and fro over many years. So so just is that about did I get that about right? <laughs> what actually happens? I appreciate you setting me up to provide the dramatic, <laughs> yeah. the dramatic response. Uh, no, it is not that way. Wow. Okay, I won't, uh, and it's actually I'll not do quite that shocking. <laughs> I, I won't do the faux surprise. It, it is actually quite, um, quite surprising. Uh, we have this campaign that unfurls extremely rapidly. Uh, in fact, uh, the the uh, the serious battles take place within about two months time. Uh, and then uh, the mop up is just another few months. So the, the entire campaign is about six months. Uh, and so it, it starts in September of 533. And by about March of 534, uh, the Vandals have been vanquished. Uh, their King Jellimer has been captured and the entirety of the Vandal kingdom of former Roman North Africa has been restored to Roman authority uh, under the general Belisarius uh, with, with, reference back to the emperor in Constantinople. So this is a remarkably quick victory uh, and an achievement that absolutely astonished contemporaries uh, who couldn't believe that had gone so well. Uh, it was a miracle. <laughs> and what happened to the king who, who Jelimer had, uh, had put in the dungeon? Did he, did he survive or, or, or was, he, was he dealt with? Well, not surprisingly, um, perhaps, as soon as Jellimer heard that Roman forces had landed in Africa safely, uh, he was so enraged that he sent uh, orders to Carthage uh, and had Hilderic and all of Hilderic's close family immediately executed. Uh, so, so there is no chance that Justinian's forces were going to rescue uh, Hilderic. Jellimer made sure that happened. Uh, and ironically, that also ensured the destruction of the Vandal Kingdom. Yeah. Because if Jellimer had not killed Hilderic, Justinian and Belisarius would have been in this awkward position where having won these victories by Justinian's own sort of propaganda and diplomacy, they might have felt obliged to restore Hilderic to the Vandal throne. But suddenly Hilderic is dead. So once Jellimer is defeated, there is no reason to keep a Vandal regime at all. And the uh, the Vandal regime is abolished. Uh, the Vandals, in fact, seem to cease to exist as a people. They, they just sort of uh, disappear almost overnight uh, after these Roman victories. And so uh, Carthage and the rest of Roman territory from what is today Tunisia to Morocco – uh, is reintegrated into Justinian's Roman Empire. So it's back to Constantinople for Belisarius and, and Tanina. Um, sorry about that. Uh, it's back to Constantinople for Belisarius and, and Tanina. Damn it, blast. I can't, I can't <laughs> say it right. Anyway, they're back in Constantinople for what must be the first Roman triumph in a long time. Yes. So uh, Justinian for Belisarius revives this ancient Roman tradition of the triumph, uh, which had been a coveted reward for Roman generals throughout the Republican period. Uh, it was a chance for them to get their their persons in front of the people, to have everybody cheering for them. Uh, it raised their reputation and their their the perception of them in public considerably. Uh, and as a result, uh, once Augustus 
became emperor, um, very quickly triumphs were restricted to the imperial person himself. Uh, so it's not that triumphs completely disappear. Uh, they are just co-opted into imperial propaganda. And so the only person in you know, the preceding centuries that will celebrate a triumph will be the emperor for his own victory. Uh, or you know, he'll take his general's credit for their victory and triumph himself. Uh, so what's unusual here about Belisarius receiving a triumph is he is the first non-emperor to enjoy a triumph in probably 500 years. Uh, and he is allowed to parade through the streets of Constantinople at the head of some of his soldiers. Uh, the Vandal captives, including the King Gelimer, are dragged behind him. Uh, all of the spoils of the war that have been looted from the Vandal treasury upon the capture of Carthage are carted behind him as well. So it's this massive procession through the streets of Constantinople it ends in the Hippodrome, and Belisarius gets to the Hippodrome, the place where just, count it, uh, two years before he had been <laughs> slaughtering Roman civilians, and he's got 100,000 Romans cheering for him and, and chanting his name, and he throws Gelimer on the ground in front of Justinian in the imperial box, and the Vandal King grovels, uh, and then... Uh, what really drives home that this is the emperor show, Belisarius throws himself down on the ground, and he is also groveling next to Gelimer. So we have this remarkable spectacle of the conqueror and the conquered, both in the same position, prostrate on the ground, groveling before the emperor, uh, so that everybody can be reminded that although Belisarius has triumphed, he is ultimately loyal to his emperor. Uh, and so this is how this, this remarkable procession ends. And I think that's a very good time for us to end the podcast. I should say we're going to come back and we're going to do part two of Belisarius and Antonina's career. So thank you so much for an absolutely brilliant exposition. It was my pleasure and I look forward to part two. <laughs> well, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you have the time, then a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever it is, that would be fantastic. Uh, and generally, if you, if you have any feedback at all, do feel free to drop me uh, a line. My email is hog.russell at gmail.com. That's two G's, two S's and two L's. Okay, that's it. I really hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll be listening again next time. So bye for now. Thank you.